Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today, <laughs> we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Abel Ferrara's The Addiction. Which, right off the bat, um, is our fourth vampire movie. Yeah, come on, Crypt. What the hell? <laughs> the only thing, like, we'll, we'll talk about this at length. I want to com- compare and contrast things. But when we started Cult Fiction, I just kind of had this expectation that it would be a ton of zombie movies. And uh-huh. so far, we've only seen one zombie movie, and that one was debatably cult. So. Yeah. And all of the vampire movies. Which begs the question, what makes vampire movies cult? Which I'm sure we'll talk about later. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But real quick, if you you didn't watch The Addiction, which I I wouldn't blame you merely because this is probably the hardest movie to find that we've reviewed. Yeah, I only finally found it on YouTube. Same, and I was like, pulling up my hair especially because i watched it after you i was like oh shit no i have to find this movie i have to watch it (laughs) and and granted it's free on youtube so that's lovely but yeah this one was the first movie where i legitimately worried about both of us being able to see it at the same time correct so if you skipped it If you skipped it, The Addiction is the story of Kathleen Conklin, a philosophy grad student living in New York, who one night is attacked by a vampire and becomes a vampire herself. And the movie is this exploration of Kathleen's vampirism at the same time juxtaposing with her philosophy, like, knowledge, and just becomes this, like descent into evil mm-hmm. while examining the nature of what it is to actually be evil as she runs around absolutely infecting almost everybody she knows in New York. <laughs> almost everyone she knows is extremely accurate. The climax and spoilers for a movie, but if you're listening to this episode, you're probably okay with spoilers. Um, the climax of the movie is just a vampirism free-for-all writhing fest of animalistic bodies and gore. Like, it's just... It really does reach its peak of like, oh, this is vampirism to its max. I'd call it an orgy, but it's really more of a buffet. <laughs> Your stunned silence. <laughs> I'll allow it, but watch yourself, McCoy. <laughs> But no, you're you're really right. It's it's vampirism in the sense of like, you know how interview with a vampire makes vampirism look like almost lovely. It's roses and red wine and sauteed onions and a little bit of red velvet. Like it makes vampirism look pretty. Mm-hmm. The height of this really points out the level of gore and brutalism. Sure. That's involved. 
and and I suppose this is a decent time to bring it up. So like Abel Ferrara isn't a huge well-known director. He's not even as big of a well-known cult director as your David Cronenberg's or your John Waters, but Abel Ferrara very much has a style and a thing he does. And that thing is constantly re-examining how shitty and gross and grungy eighties and early nineties pre disneyfied New York was like you go through the man's body of work. This is only like his fourth or fifth movie, but it's a bunch of like hard boiled corrupt cop detective. Like New York is a, is a bad place kind of vibes and then out of seemingly nowhere he comes out with a vampire philosophy movie (laughs) but it it makes sense knowing everything else about his body of work because this is very much about how seedy and gross and depraved like new york and and the humans that we watch are well i think it, it could be argued that it's like new york is a microcosm of humanity's macrocosm so like new york is just like a petri dish of what the rest of the human race is um because the whole movie is like this dripping it's black and white it's dripping and over and it's got this whole like moody artsy thing i'm really glad i didn't see it when i was 17 because i absolutely would have had tattoos of this movie across my thigh but it's got this moody feel of it but it's ultimately this examination of like hey all humanity is is evil like that's the whole thesis of the movie is like humanity when left alone is bad and it really it it plays that up it you know the worst thing you actually see in the movie are actual photographs of carnage from like you know the vietnam war and the holocaust and that is without a doubt the most like shocking and horrific imagery used in the movie and it's real stuff that real humans perpetrated and did and so i completely agree that that like that's still the thesis statement and i don't think we've outright said it i i enjoyed this I definitely enjoyed this more than I thought I was going to. And it, Mm -hmm. I I think the reason why is this does have such a point of view and it just sort of plays in the space of vampirism as metaphor for blank, several different things, Um, you know, drug metaphor, rape metaphor, which goes hand in hand with the vampire genre. And also like, the evil nature of humanity metaphor and that that is played to really great effect i feel like real quick for the people playing at home what would you get tattooed from this movie oh there's a line this is very like moody 17 year old stephanie but there's a line where uh kathy the main character walks into a library and she goes libraries are just like graveyards tombstones all in a row and i was like oh my god this is so me and my goth face (laughs) shout out to chris Troggett who single-handedly escorted me through my goth face oh bless his heart (laughs) yeah seriously (laughs) 
it, it's such an interesting vibe. And, and, you know, you say, oh, thank God I didn't see this in college. I think probably very much the same, especially when I was just freshly into like my my radio, television, film student like days. Um, this is such an interesting addition to vampire cinema, because on the one hand, this movie is so unknown to most people it's so like meant to be played in an art house and at the same time by and large the people who see it tend to like it there's um there's some film critic in houston whose whose name i didn't jot down but it was in the notes that the guy for like 10 years had this on a column list of his 10 greatest movies ever made so like this had an impact with people but it had such a narrow, like, range of people. I think you understand things, you know nothing. You understand nothing. I'll show you what you are. Good impact. Just so interesting to me because it's, you and I both watched it and we both came away with, huh, that wasn't bad. <laughs> and that's solidly where it will stay. It's not... Um, surprisingly good, like Return to Oz. It's not, oh, I've never heard of this and I wish I had with Desperately Seeking Susan. It's just, oh, that wasn't bad. And I I argue that I wouldn't have even liked this as much as I did if I hadn't have seen The Hunger first. Oh, why? Because that kind of felt, oh, it kind of felt like The Hunger was the foreplay, The Addiction was the sex. Huh. Okay. Because, Because the hunger was like, it was pretty, it was over the top, it was artsy, and it was interesting, but it was slow. Mm -hmm. This movie was slow, but it was only 82 minutes, which was its saving grace for me. Because I was like, okay, this is well paced for something that's basically a short film. I can see it. I, I can see it, and I agree with that. It's compact. It's the little black dress of vampire movies. Put that on the box. Jesus, that's a great, that's a <laughs> hell of a poll quote. No, and, and you're right. And and so I, I wanted us to break this down and compare and contrast to other vampire movies. I will say off the top, I loved The Hunger so much. This doesn't top The Hunger for me, but sure. I see completely what you're saying because The Hunger was so like pretty and darkly beautiful and very much like exploring okay let's let's talk about immortality and let's talk about like the dark love of vampires and the addiction is very much like okay let's just talk about the darkness of vampires period let's talk about how immortality truly is hell let's talk about how in real life this uh this phenomenon would not be beautiful it would be wet and sticky and gross just like the rest of dark humanity tends to be this one definitely takes the ball and runs with it much farther than the hunger is what I'll say. Yeah. And it's not a very predictable vampire movie, which is what I think I enjoyed more. Sure. Um, Our main character, Kathy gets turned by a woman 
And so that already turns, you know, a bit of the genre on its head, because if we ever have a female protagonist, she's getting turned by a male vampire. The hunger is a bit different. Um, (laughs) But it's, you know, and it's a philosophy examination. So there's like that other level of like, what what is the thesis here? What are we trying to say? What is the what is the philosophy underneath this? It's just a very different vampire movie. It is to to its effect, I think. Like, so let's let's take this is the most contemporary vampire film we've watched. It's still um, like twenty five years old, but we haven't seen any vampire media that came out after this. This came out uh, like a decade after The Hunger and Lost Boys. And I think it's so interesting that it like it moves the conversation from what being a vampire could be and like the the seduction and the temptation of being a vampire, which for all of its uh, faults, Lost Boys still kind of tries to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, it pushes it into a like no, you're in the shit now. What would actually happen? What would be the, like, how insane would you go if your life changed in this way? Um, And just to tie it all up with a bow, like the first thing we saw, Blood for Dracula, granted that one is still totally uh, a flaming pile of shit and art house to the extreme, but looking at the timeline, we go from literally a Dracula story into, Oh, fantastical. What fun would it be to be a vampire? You'd be cool. You'd be sexy. You'd be wearing leather. You'd be seducing something. And now we look at the latest thing on the timeline, the addiction. And it's like, no, this would kind of suck. This would kind of suck in a whole lot of different ways for a whole lot of different people, but that's life kid. (laughs) Um, and I think there's no greater exploration of no, this would kind of suck than Christopher Walken's character. <laughs> he came on screen and out loud I go, oh, there he is. Well, yeah, because you, you, you hear the addiction starring Lily Taylor and Christopher Walken and you assume Christopher Walken is in more than a single scene. <laughs> yep, but, but he's not. God, what a scene he gets. He comes in and just owns this movie and capital A acts the pants off of the material he's given and injects so much interesting conversation into the material and just completely knocks it out of the park. I made a joke when we uh, ended the last episode because, you know, walk in. Hey, I'm doing the thing. No, I, I always forget until I'm experiencing it how much i love good christopher walken yeah when the man's trying good he is good in this role he absolutely kicks ass as pena the it's so hard to even like figure out so so what is he he's the the vampire who refuses to feed he's the vampire who feeds on other vampires like it's a fascinating character Yeah, I think he's the vampire who is like, to use another John Mulaney quote, he's done his time, come and take me. (laughs) Um, 
Like, he's just, he has done the vampire thing for so long um, that he's like, okay, here's how you, here's how you be a vampire and be sane. Um, which I feel like is a pretty regular trope in a lot of vampire movies. There is the vampire who's like, listen, this is how I've, this is how I've stayed moral and sane all of these years. Um... And it's so rarely presented in this way, though. Like, this is this is one of the things I really like about the addiction and Walken's performance and character capitalizes on it. In The Hunger, Susan Sarandon played withdrawal so well. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was my Oscar, the best representation of blood withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And that's still better, I think, than what we see in The Addiction. But... Just the whole concept of being a vampire isn't about you're going to die unless you get blood. Being a vampire is you are a heroin addict. And playing with blood as drug, I think I haven't seen it quite done in this way. And so it's it's one of Walken's first lines where he he tells uh, Kathy, you know, I haven't shot up in 40 years. And the last time I did, it was 12 people in one night. He's the, he's the, the guy who stayed clean and tells other addicts how to stay clean, but understands that you have to hit that rock bottom yourself and nobody can get you off of the smack or the blood as it were. Yeah. And he's, that kind of character of like guiding. And so that leads us to Kathy, you know, the next scene is she's invited all these people to her place um, to celebrate her dissertation successfully landing. And she's crying in the bath bathroom or closet or something, trying to convince herself, like, I'm not going to do it this time. I'm not going to do it this time. Mm -hmm. And all of her vampire friends are walking around the party. Like, have you seen Kathy? Are we still doing this thing? Is this still happening? What's going on? And then she has an altercation with a friend where she realizes like, Oh shit, this is just, I just need this, this bad. And it's that kind of like breakdown of, I need this. I need my fix. Right. The entire, like, last 20 minutes of the movie, Kathy's character motivations, they were so confusing to me in the moment because she goes almost manically from one extreme to the other, back and forth and back and forth. And then it hit me. Yeah. Like a junkie who's fighting the need for that fix and becomes so obsessed with it and becomes so like, overcome that they just aren't thinking clearly at all and then has the clarity and the regret that comes with the clarity of the come down. Yeah. I got to tell you there, there were so many questions that I was asking the movie and wasn't sure if I was going to get answers. One of those was we don't see until that scene that she's been making other vampires. We see she's been biting people and so it's left to you're left to wonder okay is she is she killing everybody 
that when, when she was attacked, it didn't kill her so ostensibly. But I was like, I was worried that we were never going to see Edie Falco or we were never going to see um, the, the philosophy prof- professor or any of her victims again. And then you start to see them in that scene and they do it in such a lovely way where it's like the people you would recognize the least first but I like my eyes lit up and I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Abel Ferrar for answering. Yeah. She's totally making other vampires and now they're all going to have a good time. That's so interesting. Cause for me, I think if she would have killed them, they would have been dead on impact. But we, when she turns Edie Ferrar, blah, 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 when she turns Edie Falco, we still see Edie Falco after like, she's not just passed out on the floor convulsing. Um, the nameless anthropology student who is played by Catherine Irby um, is still alive and, like, is holding her neck in Kathy's bathroom. Right. And saying, like, why did you why did you do this to me? Like, you didn't have to do this. Why did you do this to me? So I think if they had been dead, I would have felt like I saw them dead, but I kind of felt like Catherine Irby's whole thing in that mirror scene is her saying like, you didn't have to turn me. Why did you do this? That That's a good time. Uh, uh, this is- I, you look me in the face and you tell me to go. You're hurting me. Are you kidding me? I'll crush you like cardboard. This is a good moment to turn it around. Like this movie kind of duels between so many different things, what it it wants to talk about, but I feel like they're able to do it all pretty effectively. We've talked a bit at length now about how the addiction treats vampirism as drug abuse, but it's with those two characters specifically and Kathy, Kathy herself, this movie very much talks about like vampire attack as metaphor for rape mm-hmm. in, in ways that I was like, concerned about like it really hit me for some reason um what the movie does and and how it plays with that that idea and that metaphor you know when when kathy is turned she's pulled into a random back alley by a woman and we see all the vampires kind of do this thing where it's like tell me to stop tell me to go away and mean it and that is the verbal unspoken like question I feel like from a real life rapist and you see in the first scene, Kathy can't do it. She's confused. She's begging for her life and it fails and she is attacked for that. And then later the part that that really hit when she attacks her friend in the bathroom, you know, when she attacks Edie Falco, she says the same thing. Tell me to stop. Tell me, tell me to go away. And Edie Falco does, and it doesn't work. It doesn't actually do anything. That was personally for me, that was very affecting and very chilling and very upsetting, honestly. Yeah. Well, I feel like all of Kathy's attacks, um, have the guise of a romantic meeting so like and i wouldn't have brought this up if you hadn't had brought up this point but like other than gene which you're right there's absolutely the language of rape around it but 
um, with the philosophy professor, she takes him home, and it's very clear she's taking him home to seduce him in some way, but certainly not the way he expects. Totally. Um, and real quick, subpoint within your subpoint. I love how fucking over her bullshit he is the entire night, and he still goes in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm kind of bored. I'm not having a great night, but I'll still go home with you because I'm a piece of shit human who's an unethical professor. Yep. Um, who's absolutely willing to sleep with his students. Um, so so icky, so unethical, so bad. But then also, Kathy does it again with the street harasser guy. Right. Like, she's like, my name is Kathy. I'll come back later. And then she comes back later and absolutely turns him. So it's, she's leading with this guise of, like, sexuality, even with the unnamed anthropology student. She's like, do you want to come back to my place for a cup of coffee after we've been having this really hot chemistry the entire scene? I'm going to turn you into a vampire. That one was lost on me, but I, I, I'm really here for it. The idea that like in a world where they're not vampires, they have, uh, you know, a, a late night study cram at the library and then go back to her place for a, a, a tryst. Cause yeah, now that, now that they, you've said it, I can't unsee it. They go back to cram something else. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> the the last other part that like really um struck me was that Kath the the, the part with um is it Catherine Irby? Is that who we're saying it is? Yes. Okay. Yes, Catherine the, Irby. The the other scene with Catherine Irby afterwards, you know, you already mentioned it, she's asking why you didn't have to do this to me. Uh Lily Taylor straight up starts victim blaming her about yeah. the situation and being like, you wanted it. Like you, you could have told me to go. You didn't have to come here with me. As far as I'm concerned, this is your fault. Oh. <sighs> and there's also a part where, um, Catherine goes to class the mm -hmm. day after she's turned, she goes to class. And at first I was like, oh, that says so much about her as a person, you know, that she's really dedicated. That's so interesting. And then I was like, oh, no, she's in sh Of course she goes to class. She's in shock. Right. Which is like a very typical response to sexual assault is like, oh, I'm going to continue my life as normal because nothing is different except everything's different. Totally. And, and, you know, she has her, her scene that night before where she's going through it. I'm not sure if they were trying to say like, here's where the vampire change happens, or this is a, an example of blood withdrawal. It played off very much as a, the nightmares the night after, because they straight up like have they show that she is thinking about her attacker in the alleyway and like unable to sleep, unable to find peace. Um, so all that to say, like, you know, you mentioned this is a, a tight 80, they pack this to the brim with messaging and with ideas mm -hmm. and like there, it was so clear Abel Ferrara had a bunch of concepts he wanted to explore and just put them all in the movie. And for the most part, I think it really works. I agree. I think there's a lot 
even the philosophy stuff, which I feel, you know, kind of even goes over my head, but there's this one point that keeps getting hammered in is man's inhumanity to man. So, like, Mm -hmm. if we had wanted to miss that point, we wouldn't have started with Vietnam, which was so unexpected, I thought I started the wrong movie at first. Same, kind of. like. <laughs> but it's like, okay, all right, so we're clearly dealing with man's monstrosity. And then at the very end, in the climax scene of Kathy's vampire bloodbath party, um, she starts it by saying, here's what I've learned the past several years. What she's learned is that everyone's out to get their own men are terrible everything not in men like men but like men like humanity humanity. right yeah like there's no inner good and it's hard to argue with the with that um statement when like you know the movie just beats us over the head with uh war crime imagery and and real life atrocities I thought that was so interesting. And and the first time, you know, we start the movie with a critique of conduct during Vietnam. And I was like, oh, okay, I see you movie from 1995. Like there was this, this kind of just zeitgeist of we kept wanting to go back to Vietnam and win the war um, mm. throughout Hollywood. And that's, you know, that's where you get, the last couple Rambo movies. That's a lot of world war two movies kind of are like thematically actually about Vietnam and, and winning it. And so I just thought, Oh, okay. Interesting. Abel Ferrara pulled his two cents in there, but it's so much more than that. And, you know, he shows that by making it about the Holocaust as well. And I enjoy the concept of the, humanity of man or lack thereof in a movie where several times a human asks an inhuman creature, a vampire for mercy. Mm -hmm. You're appealing to the humanity of something that isn't human anymore. Mm -hmm. Like chef's kiss on that part of the film paper. Now, R.C. Sproul said we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Yeah, there's a lot shoved in here. There's a lot of thought. And, okay, we need to talk about the ending. You mean the the direct ending? Yeah. (laughs) The she takes confession and is dead, maybe faked her death. Maybe she's dead and she's an illusion. What the hell? So, yeah. So, so just to, for, for people who skip the movie to fully paint the scene, we go from vampiric carnage buffet to Kathy walking down the street, just covered head to toe in blood and like has a, a, emotional breakdown starts sobbing gets seen by people sent to the hospital tries to kill herself with sunlight is what i got mm-hmm. and, and and that's where the vampire who made her shows up 
and like closes the blinds and is like, no, 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 it's not that easy. Like you're in hell now. You don't get to turn it off. We're these immortal creatures who are suffering half the time, get ready for some suffering. But then that's immediately followed by her walking out of the room and a priest walking in and giving Kathy a chance to confess and be re-sanctified and take communion. And then we immediately go to a shot of Kathleen Conklin's grave where then she herself places a flower on it and walks out like over the last couple lines of the movie. So it's very confusing. <laughs> I, uh, I think I told you like my initial impression was that this kind of fumbles the ending just cause it does get so wait, what is going on? I yeah. think she kills herself. And I, okay. and, and my, my logic for that is, you know, I, I looked up and researched Abel Farrar a little bit and he is a uh, devout Catholic. And okay. what I take it as is we see sunlight doesn't work. We see sunlight does something. Cause there's like, it, it clearly seems to hurt. And so maybe if she stayed out in the sun long enough, it would work. But like, when she tries to kill herself with sunlight, it doesn't work. And then goes for the, the absolution and the confession angle. And I think there is just something interesting to the idea of like sanctification, purging mm -hmm. the, the, the drug, the addiction, the beast, the monster, the vampirism. But also like at that point, there's nothing left. So, like I read it as she kills herself. It's, it's suicide via communion wafer. And then the last shot is just pure, pure artsy, like art house. Wait, what attitude? Like, I, I really wish that she wasn't the person who placed a rose on her grave. Like, even if it was Edie Falco placing a rose on her grave, I think that would like ironclad solidify, my interpretation, but they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted it to be Edie Falco so bad, but alas, no, I will say for the Catholic priest part. Um, did you notice that she only gets the body of Christ and not the blood? <laughs> oh, no, but I'm here for that. <laughs> She gets the communion wafer, but like there's this pregnant pause where she's just lying there with the wafer in her mouth. And I'm like, okay, but there's like, I know there's a second part. Come on now. Raised evangelical, married to a lapsed Catholic. I know. And then <laughs> Interesting. she never gets it. And I'm like, huh. Why? Why? <laughs> Because she's had her fill of blood. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, maybe. I mean, that's... God, if I, if I had had to do a film paper on this in college, I could have had a field day with that. But, like, that's what I take it. The, the only thing I can say is, like, logistically, it, it seems like it would be so hard to fake your death. And what's the point... Like, yeah, she's got her own little vampire cabal now, 
but it's very unclear if like she's the new vampire queen of New York or 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 what the deal is. So it, it I can't see how logistically she would be able to cover up and fake her own death. It's so much easier that she finally finds an escape and for a a a self-proclaimed like Catholic Italian American director to have the solution be devotion to God. Like that, it, it, it just kind of fits. Yeah, I think so. And maybe, you know, maybe the Kathy we see at the end is her spirit walking the world she, one last time. She is dressed in white. And I, I did pick up on that. Oh, see, I missed that. Interesting. Like, so like Clever. we said, like this, this one is certainly, this was a bit more than I think either of us were expecting. And it absolutely was. I'm not quite sure where it ranks in the entire cult fiction pantheon for me, at least, but let me ask you, would you say this was the best of the four vampire movies we've seen for you? Yeah. That's fair. This is a strong number two for me. Like I, I said, I I liked The Hunger more, but that was just because it was so damn pretty. Like I said, even then, like... This, go this ahead. had pretty moments. This had very pretty moments. Like... Black and white is is shorthand for me for we're trying to be artistic and like make a more artistic thing. But it also usually lends itself to such phenomenal lighting. And, and that was certainly present here. Um, the camera work was solid. You know, there there is that scene between Lily Taylor and Catherine Irby where you see Catherine Irby's face in the mirror, but they're talking to each other but you see both their faces Mm -hmm. next to each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was absolutely very solid. This is a, a solid number two, in my opinion. Um, And that's no shame on it, but certainly not um, looking at lost boys or blood for Dracula any more favorably than I was. This is a very script heavy movie. Um, You know, it, I, I keep saying like, I feel like this had to have been, a passion project more than anything else. And, and I'll li- elaborate a little bit on that when we talk about whether or not it's cult, but this is a movie that I feel like is more about the script than anything else. So with that in mind, were you able to find any quotes? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I feel like Christopher Walken was our main man when it comes to that. Uh, he really was. <laughs> he was dropping- he was dropping him left and right, but my favorite one he said was, Eternity is a long time, kid. Get used to it. This is a a movie for monologues and for, like, doing acting scenes later. And Christopher Walken's five minutes of this is one hell of a scene to do in, like, your drama five acting class later on because of all the quotes and all the writing. Uh, my quote was also from Christopher Walken. Um, and speaking of acting, read the books, Sartre, Beckett, Burroughs. Who do you think they're talking about? You think they're works of fiction? 
And I'm going to go ahead and lead us right into the Oscars because my Oscar is that same exact moment. Um, my Oscar for the addiction is best reference to a stage play because it, it's probably the theater nerd in me, but for Christopher Walken out of nowhere to name drop, no exit and Endgame, which are two famous plays about how hell is other people and the like concept of not being able to escape other people. Like that just made me so happy to get a, a random <laughs> like Beckett Endgame reference. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do a little parenthetical here and say, speaking of William Burroughs, um, they randomly name drop Naked Lunch as well, which is my reading rec. And it's fitting. We talk so many times in this episode about how this movie is a metaphor for drug addiction Naked Lunch by William Burroughs is about drug addiction, and it's very stream of conscious thought, like a lot of writing of the beats. It's very loosely connected, but it's also a lot of philosophical ranting about how drugs leave you a little bit lonely um, and naked. Like, that's kind of the whole mm. thing of the work. So, Naked Lunch reading rack for this episode i caught that i caught when they referenced naked lunch i didn't realize it was a uh a william burroughs novel mm-hmm. i i do remember that naked lunch is a david cronenberg movie <laughs> which is actually on the list so it's a good thing we enjoyed this because sooner or later we will have more of it in that movie excellent well naked bodies my Oscar for The Addiction goes to Lily Taylor for Best Body Work. She was doing some great acting here. She was. Like, like all the performances are great. You know, there's, there's a lot of HBO people who, before they got famous, uh, Edie Falco, um, Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos has a, a guest appearance. Like I said, it's it's good Christopher Walken, which is just such a fucking treat. I, I like that a lot. And, and I was, I'm glad that you elaborated because Lily Taylor does do such a great job in this show or uh, in this movie. And she is not like necessarily a name that I, that comes to my mind a lot, but she kicks this movie's ass. What else? Lily Taylor in I'm looking her up now and I don't feel like I know a lot about her so the other thing I really know her from is um she was the mother in the conjuring um the horror movie um oh yeah other than that um I'm seeing a couple of long-standing TV credits. She's on Perry Mason, which I haven't seen, but I've heard is very good. She was in Six Feet Under, which I haven't seen, but I've heard is very good. Um, <laughs> looks like she... No worries. Look, looks like a whole bunch of, of TV and minor work stuff, but I also get the impression she had to have been, like, doing the New York thing of balancing Broadway and you know, whatever New York film project came her way just because mm-hmm. I get the sense that this entire cast was. Yeah. 
Yeah, very, very good Oscar. I very much support it. Like she manages to play everything. Like she she's afraid and sexy and in control and absolutely flying by the seat of her pants. She she kind of does a little bit of everything in this and and I adore it. You know who else we adore? Good old Kevin Bacon. Good old Kevin Bacon. Were you able to find how this movie connected to Kevin Bacon? (laughs) I I was. I was indeed. Um, So, you know, the addiction has Christopher Walken, who is in At Close Range with Chris Penn, who is in Footloose with Kevin Bacon. He certainly is. He certainly is. Um, what did you find? Because <laughs> I'm kind of ticked off. Annabella Siora, who was our lovely Casanova, is in Destination Anywhere with Kevin Bacon. I'm upset that you were able to do it in one, but also... I have I, I can't be too mad because I had never heard of Annabella Siora before this, and I've never heard of Destination Anywhere. So I, I feel proud that for the second movie in a row, I, I got to Footloose. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. I've got to, you know, pick it where I can get it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of picking, do we get to pick our next movie? Well, we do, but just real quick, since we kind of skipped over it, I wanted to get your take. Is the addiction cult? Oh, yeah. You know, the whole reason we have this podcast. (laughs) I mean, at this point, really, it's a vampire movie, so it's got to be cult, right? Because that seems to be the argument the crypt is making. I will put Blade and Blade 2 on the list and put that to the test. Like, <laughs> Don't you dare. We already have so many. Oh, I, I would say this is crypt by nature of the fact that it's art house. It's black and white. It's very, very artsy and weird. And I have never heard about this before. Absolutely. Now, I agree. It, it wound up being incredibly qu- quotable. It's the kind of movie that if you did see it in like film school, you wouldn't be able to shut up about it to all your pretentious film school friends. It, it is such a like weird art house passion project type of vibe to the point where I, I looked into the financials and I looked a little harder than I normally do and found something interesting. This movie had a budget of $46,500. Damn near microscopic for a, you know, a movie mm-hmm. at least. It made 300000 So, you know, we're, we're talking like its box office gross is still smaller than your average movie's budget. But it did. It, it was a financial success for that. I think part of the reason all these numbers is so slow this movie only played in eight movie theaters in America. Oh my God. Why so few? Because I assume they had to have all been like Enzion's or, you know, your, your total specialty art house, like 
movie theater. This didn't play in your Regal or your your Crown Cinemas or anything like that. It, it played for three months in seven select, bizarre, gotta hunt down and find it locations across America. And that's not even, you know, I could understand like a, a showing in every state even. But that's, that's eight. That's people, if they were really interested, drove three hours to see this. Right. In in the mid 90s. So you can't even really say the like the Internet is helping you. This is you have some like film auteur magazine telling you about this philosophy vampire flick that won something called the Golden Bear Award at the German International Film Festival. And you go, oh, my God, I got to see that. <laughs> Golden Bear Award. At the 45th Berlin International Film Festival. Oh, sure. Yeah, you know. It's not Kane, but... (laughs) Or Khan. I did the thing again. (laughs) (laughs) I was very patiently not saying anything. I appreciate that. I think I'm going to leave that whole moment untouched for other people's amusement. Also for other people's amusement, since we do this podcast for you, the listeners, almost as much as we do it for ourselves, um, it is now time to put our hands in the Hollywood crypt and pick the next movie. Yay! My favorite part. Yeah, absolutely. As long as it's not Anaconda. Absolutely. I mean, there's a a 1 in 304th chance it's Anaconda. There's a 1 in 304th chance it's Naked Lunch. There's a 1 in 304th chance it's the other Abel Ferrara movie we have on here. Oh, no. (laughs) It is number 251, which is... (laughs) So number 251 is another very complex indie movie. Um, It is 2004's Primer. This is a movie about time travel. This has been Uh lauded as one of the most accurate movies about time travel ever made. And it's also been lauded as almost impenetrably hard to understand on the first going. (laughs) Oh, so glad that we get to deal with that. How fun. (laughs) How great for us. Yay! Well, Andy, where can we find Primer? So Primer is available for rent on YouTube, Google Play, and Amazon Prime at time of recording. That's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we hopefully um, come back in time and warn ourselves about if this movie is a bad time or um, don't and therefore encourage ourselves to watch it. And if that sentence was confusing, then get ready because that is like how the movie works as we watch 2004's Primer. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell.
Well, that's all for this addiction. <clears throat> I'm gonna take that again.